Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you, and I'm glad you took a few minutes to gather around with your family and, and around the Word of God this morning. It's important that we meet together like this, even if it's by distance, but gathered as a church family around the Word of God. Uh, let me echo what uh, Pastor Jeremy just said. On a week like this, your giving is especially important. So uh, just urge you to take a few minutes and, and go online this morning and be consistent in your giving the needs will not go away just because uh, we had snowfall this week and our unprecedented cold temperatures. We'll have a lot of ministry to do and a lot of people that need help. So be faithful in your giving, and I know you will. I just want to commend you for that. But take a moment to do that early, right now, early in the day, and get that taken care of. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, I think uh, that probably the average church member has no idea uh, how much material is left on the cutting room floor uh, as we're doing sermon prep. Um, our services are not brief. In other words, it's not usually a 25-minute message. It's usually a 45-minute message. And even then, we leave a ton of our prep and a ton of what God has given us in the, the study preparation process on the editing floor. It doesn't make it to the worship service because there's just not enough time. And so we try to take, uh, as we're prepping for the message, uh, the thoughts that, that stay on theme with the series or those we think of, you know, of five things that need to be talked about, which is the most relevant to what our lives look like right now. Uh, and, and we usually will focus on that, but a lot of material gets left behind. So the podcasts, the podcasts will give you some insight, uh, to what it would be like to sit around the church conference room table and listen to the pastoral staff every week, uh, for hours prepare for those messages. And you'll hear some of the things that are discussed, and I think it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, and as, as Jeremy said too, the the technology right now has given us an unprecedented moment to be interactive in a way that we never could before. Uh, I know growing up in church, it was kind of a con it was a message at you. Uh, there was really no forum or technology for it to be a conversation. It was only coming at you, and you had to. You had to deal with the the gospel or the message or the teaching of the word of God as it uh, came at you headlong. And it was hard uh, to ask questions. There wasn't a forum for that. There, there just was no way outside of scheduling an appointment with the pastor, which in a church beyond probably 100 people is just impossible during the week for everyone to have their questions answered. So I say all that to say this. We, we have it now. And uh, questions have already come in off of just the material we've presented. And uh, we'll pr be presenting a lot more uh, of those podcasts and devotions this week to supplement what we do on Sunday mornings. I'm glad you're warm and safe. Hopefully you've got some hot chocolate. You're snuggled up. You've got your journal and a pen. Uh, let's get right into the word of God after we pray. Let's pray together. Father, we're glad that even though we are physically distant, we can be together. 
bound together by the Holy Spirit, bound together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we are bound together by the commitment we've made to our church community. And Father, we thank you for the community we have. Lord, thank you for technology that in an unprecedented way connects us this morning. And even though we are scattered physically, we are right here together in unity, in mind and in spirit and in thought this morning. And Lord, I would ask uh, that our hearts and minds be open because even though we're not meeting in the church room, you can meet with us and speak to our hearts. You can reveal your truth and your word to us this morning. And so, Lord, wherever families are gathered, wherever individuals are connected to us through technology, God, we invite your presence. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak freely to us. Give us spiritual ears to hear. And Lord, whatever is of precedent in this chapter that we need to apply to our lives this morning, let it be clear and let us know how to apply this to our lives. Lord, bless our time together. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, grab your journal, grab your pen, and let's, uh, let, let's prepare really for the, for the opening of the book now. Uh, let me, let me start with my own perspective on one matter that's about to be addressed by the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> for me, I don't like divisions among my family and friends. When my family and friends have divisions and, and strife going on, whether it's with my disciples, whether it's with my immediate family members or my circle of friendship, I cannot be at peace uh, when there is unresolved tension. I cannot be at peace. It disturbs my sleep. It, it fills me with feelings of uh, anxiety. I get anxious. I get worked up. And uh, just knowing that there is unresolved division and it would be magnified, I guess, the closer home it gets, like between my sons or my wife or the immediate relationships, that anxiety is heightened when I know there is division. Divisions in a family work against everything that a family is supposed to be. A similar dynamic now is at work in our nation, and I think we are watching it played out on the media uh, the media is consumed with it over the past weeks. Our nation's being torn apart by divisions. And our divisions ultimately cause us to be less secure. Our divisions in the nation prevent us from seeing the real enemies that are at work against us. Our divisions distract us from finding and implementing solutions to the real problems that we're facing in our lives. And we find ourselves politically at an impasse. The modern word that you'll hear a lot is we now have gridlock. We are gridlocked. Just means it's all jumbled up and messed up and we cannot find a way forward. And, and as a result of divisions, uh, divisions end in destructive behaviors. And I guess we have seen that play out as well now in our nation's capital. And what is true for a family and what is true for a nation is also true of a church. You'll see that this morning on the pages of the Bible because a church, after all, is just another kind of family. It's a family that must have unity. And the question that you're going to be faced with this morning is how? How can the church family 
find unity? What is our common ground for unity? In our time together this morning, I want to address three main issues. Two of them I'll address briefly. One I will address more thoroughly. And I bring this to your attention because this will be the style as we teach through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. We'll give more teaching to the topics uh, that we think need this focus in the worship time. And then we'll give additional teaching to the topics that can just be briefly addressed in this format. And the way we'll do that is either through the podcast or starting this week, there'll be devotions led by our staff, led by elders that go out all during the week. Those devotions will thoroughly uh, discuss, explain particular paragraphs in the text that we didn't get to explain in the worship service. I want you to listen to the devotions. They'll be brief. They'll come out during the week. Uh, and when you see them go live on Facebook, you know, you can share them, listen to it. It'll be about a 10, 15 minute devotion. And in those 10 or 15 minutes, it will explain completely the big idea of a particular paragraph. Um, Susan will go live with the first devotion this week. And when she does, if you can grab your journal or just something to write notes on, listen to what she's saying in that 10 minutes. You'll hear her give the complete big idea and the explanation and application of a particular paragraph in chapter one that I won't have time to cover this morning. And then that'll be followed by David later in the week explaining another paragraph. So let's get to what we want to talk about this morning. There are three big issues that I need to deal with this morning from the biblical text of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Those three issues are the manner in which Paul is going to greet the Corinthians. In other words, we're in a running conflict. How is he going to speak to them? What is the manner of his greeting? How does he engage them? We'll see that in just a moment. The second is Paul's response to Chloe's report. You're going to see Paul begin to make a response to Chloe in just a minute or the report that she's brought him. And then the third issue we're going to deal with this morning is Paul's definition of what real power and real wisdom are. That's a really relevant debate to where we are in the information age. And then, as I said, Susan and David will pick those last two paragraphs up and really talk about them thoroughly this week where Paul is uh, articulating this is real wisdom, this is real power, this is really what it's all about. So let's get right to it. The first thing is Paul greets the Corinthians with thankfulness. And you might say, well, duh, uh, but uh, uh, the question is, after this all uh, dispute that's going on, then how will Paul engage them? Let me pause a minute to say to you, there's something new on the screen behind me, and it's a phone number. Uh, this is one of the ways we're making the service interactive. Just let me pause for a minute and address this. Uh, you can send your question in via text, whether it's something I say this morning uh, or in the coming weeks, we'll try to leave this number up uh, on the screen for every message during this entire series. So I think you're seeing this for the first time behind me. You may say, well, that's the phone number up there. Is this where I call to get my sidewalk shoveled free of snow? No, this is the number uh, if you want to text in a question and we'll address it in the podcast devotion or sermon. So Paul greets the Corinthians with thankfulness. Now, remember, the reason this needs to be called out is because they're in the middle of a confrontation. 
When you open 1 Corinthians chapter number one, you have not opened to the first words exchanged between these two parties. You have opened the book and you find yourself in the middle of this huge controversy. You're in the middle of the conflict. And I think this needs to be instructive for us, even though we might find ourselves at times in confrontation with other believers. How do we speak to one another? How do we address one another? And Paul immediately strikes out to find common ground with the Corinthians. He greets them with thankfulness before addressing the litany of issues that are on the table. And there are a bunch of issues on the table. Paul finds common ground. He says, okay, I'm going to write to you. I'm going to answer a bunch of the things that need to be answered. But first of all, let me pause to say, I do love you. I am thankful for you. You're God's children. You're my disciples. And you'll hear that language played out. Let me read 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. I want you just to underline Sosthenes and make a notation that Sosthenes will be addressed in the podcast this week with the pastoral staff. And Sosthenes, for right now, what you need to know is he's the person taking dictation. He actually has the quill in his hand, dipping it in the ink and writing on the parchment. He's the one that Paul is uh, giving the dictation to. And Sosthenes is the one writing. You'll see a little side conversation happen here in a minute. Let me read. Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called as saints with those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Now, if you've got your pen handy, I want you to underline called as saints. And I want you to underline the words that follow who call on the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the way that Paul is about to talk to the Corinthians, the conversation is going to be snarky at times. The conversation is going to be loving. The conversation is going to be edifying. The conversation is going to be instructive. And there are times when Paul is talking to the Corinthians that you may raise a red flag and say, are these people even saved? Oh my goodness. They misuse the Lord's Supper. They're talking about prostitution. They're talking about oppression. They're talking about uh, uh, all of these uh, litany of issues I mentioned, that's a good way to say it, are these people even saved? It's very clear they are saved. Paul says, to the saints. Now, saints in the Bible doesn't mean those who are venerated by a particular church. Uh, saints, as used in Scripture, means any person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, I'm speaking to hundreds and hundreds of saints this morning, both in America and around the world who are listening, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the way Paul articulates from the beginning, notice his clarification, who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both our Lord, uh, their Lord and ours. Now, this last little phrase, both their Lord and ours. Do you see how immediately Paul has found common ground? What's our common ground? Both your Lord and mine. 
You know what unites us? Jesus Christ. Now, why that's so important at verse number two is it sets the tone for the book that Paul is going to continually circle back to the centrality of Christ and our common ground. So here's what you need to know. The conversation involves saved people. The common ground is that they've heard the gospel and they have called upon Jesus as Lord. And I know I'm speaking to, as I said, hundreds of people who have done the very same thing. You have heard the gospel. Listen, this is how I got saved. This is how I was born again. I heard the gospel and I called upon Jesus Christ. The book of Romans that Paul also wrote, which is a theological treatise, not a situational letter. That book that Paul wrote said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is what Paul reminds us all at the beginning. And this is good for us because uh, probably somewhere in your journey, whether it's in your family or with your disciples or in a church experience, you're going to be in some type of confrontation. We're going to be working through a problem. Hey, we have common ground. We've heard the gospel. My father is your father. Jesus Christ is both of uh, our lords. He's Lord of both of our lives. And so there is what unifies us and there's what holds us together in community. Now, what Paul is addressing as a church, the Corinthian church, they need to be held together. They need to live together in community, founded upon the common ground, which is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, and he'll expound upon this, are called to see this world, to see our spiritual vocation in this world through the lenses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, our worldview must be through the lenses of the gospel. And it's mandatory that we live out our lives centered on Christ. That's what it means to be spiritual people. Remember, the big question that's being addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians is, what does it mean to be spiritual people? How do you define spiritual people? Well, Paul, right at the beginning, is saying, well, spiritual people are those who have called upon Jesus Christ. They're united on the foundation of Christ, and they see their lives through the gospel. They live from this foundation outward, and it causes us, in other words, salvation is not, I made a decision, now I just go back to work on Monday or back to school and live my life as I've always lived it. That is not Christianity as defined by the Bible. It means you've called upon Jesus Christ and now you see your whole life through the lenses of the gospel. It changes your worldview. Now you see your whole existence as living for the mission of Christ and living out the method of Jesus Christ. And you and I are, are called to see the world this way after we re receive Christ as our Savior because of our relationship God has now given us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in us, and he enables each one of us to thrive in God's covenant family. Christ is both the living image of God, and he is our means, our way to become what we were destined to be, living images of God. Without the gospel foundation, any person is prone to wander off course. Let me see if I can explain this. When Christ is not central, when the gospel is not our focus, petty and non-essential issues seem to be magnified until they get to be paramount issues 
and divisions will surely follow. Such is the case in Corinth. They took their eyes off Christ and the gospel. They put their eyes on every other little issue, and those molehills suddenly became mountains of division within the church. The major conflicts now exist that have to be resolved in the Corinthian community. Namely, the church is now at odds with the founding pastor, the man who led them to Christ, the one who forged them together as a church, the one who took the time to begin the discipleship process with them. They now don't even think he is a spiritual man. They're challenging his authority, his leadership. They're challenging whether he is as spiritual as they are. And Paul sees this as a crisis, not only of his leadership, but a crisis of the gospel because the gospel is going to get twisted. The gospel is going to get left in the background. They're magnifying other things. They're forgetting about Christ and the gospel. And this is a real crisis. Paul reveals some of his key concerns in the greeting. I'll show them to you. Verse number four, I always thank my God for you. By the way, if you don't have a disciple maker in your life, I just want to share something with you. One of the one of the greatest joys in life is to know that when I get up and go to work or when I go through my day, there's somebody who's already prayed for me today. There's somebody who cares for me. There's somebody who's called my name to the throne of God and said, hey, when Bobby goes off to work today or when Bobby does it, God be with him. God give him wisdom. God protect. Somebody's praying for me and it's my disciple maker. That's a beautiful thing. Now, Paul's in conflict with these disciples. It's very clear. But I want you to read those words again. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I know we're in a conflict, but I want you to know I'm just thankful to God for you. I just give God thanks for you that you're his child and that he's going to be with you and he's going to guide you. Watch his words here, that you were enriched in him, in Christ, in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let me ask you to grab your pen again. In verse number five, I want you to underline the word speech and the word knowledge, which follows. And then in verse number seven, I want you to underline spiritual gift. And what Paul has just done is Paul has, I use the word telegraphed with the staff, that Paul telegraphed what he's about to talk to. All of our 20-year-old staff looked around and said, what are you talking about, Pastor? Paul doesn't have a telegraph. What's a telegraph anyway? What are you talking? Paul has foreshadowed. Paul has revealed his poker hand. We know what cards he's holding now. Paul has telegraphed at least three things he intends to talk about. And what are those three things? Speech, knowledge, and spiritual gifts. So don't be shocked in the upcoming chapters if Paul doesn't begin to talk about speaking gifts. If he doesn't begin to talk about, oh, yeah, you know everything in a snarky way because he wants to talk about knowledge because it's very clear. They think they know it all. Pastor David's going to deal with this 
sermon in a few weeks and where Paul assesses them in a certain way and you'll be shocked at the conversation. So Paul's going to talk about speech, knowledge, and we know he's going to talk about spiritual gifts because 1 Corinthians 12 is really the spiritual gifts chapter that everybody always wants to talk about and we'll get to talk about that in some weeks when we get to, to spiritual gifts. Now I also want you to put a star beside verse number 9. Verse number nine is very important to our faith. A lot of times uh, when you're in a church context or a disciple-making context, small group, you know, your your group leader, your pastor may talk to you about, now be faithful. God requires in stewards that we be faithful. Be faithful to Bible reading. Be faithful to prayer. Be faithful to church. Be faithful in giving. We talked about it a few minutes ago. And while all of those things are true because we want to be faithful, when we're asking you to be faithful, we're really asking you to be like God. Look at what Paul said in verse number nine. That's when we started this verse. God is faithful. I think it's critical for us to remember coming out of the year of COVID, coming through financial stress, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with sickness, dealing with death, dealing with life, dealing with the economy, dealing with political turmoil. Dealing with all that we have been dealing with, I think the big thing that we need to focus on this morning is remember that God is faithful. It's one of the main attributes of God. He has remained faithful to his covenant people. He will continue to be faithful to his covenant people. You never have to worry about your standing with God because of what Jesus Christ has done to produce peace a relationship between the Father and us. Because of Christ, we have peace with God the Father through Jesus Christ, and God will be faithful to his commitments. God will be faithful to his people. God will be faithful to his promises. The one thing you can rest on this morning is that God is faithful. This might be a great even if you didn't memorize the whole verse, just memorize those three words. First Corinthians 1 9, God is faithful. That'll bring you a lot of joy and peace this week. Okay, so there's the introduction. Paul reads them. Sounds really pretty happy and thankful and, you know, and, and God's going to be good and he's going to be faithful and he's going to work everything out. It's all going to be fine. Now a transition happens in the text. Now Paul responds to Chloe's report. And you may be saying, who's Chloe? And why does she have a report? And we'll talk about that more in the podcast. What I want you to note for now is next to verse number 10, I want you to make yourself a note that Paul's response to Chloe's report runs all the way through 620, the end of chapter 6. So this is not like, oh, Paul for a minute is just going to make a comment about this letter he received. No, Paul for six chapters is going to wax eloquent about the report he received. You're going to write half of the book, half of the letter of 1 Corinthians, really addressing Chloe's report that he has received. So all that follows in the next few weeks from this moment right now for several weeks will be Paul addressing, responding to Chloe's report. Chloe's people have sent a delegation to Paul, who is now at Ephesus. He's moved from Corinth. He's now at Ephesus. He's helping the Ephesian church get going 
and, 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 and leading people to Christ and, and doing the whole discipleship thing. He's he forging them into a church, showing them how to live the life of Christ in Ephesus, across the way in Asia Minor. He receives a delegation from Corinth in Greece. They're bearing Chloe's report. Listen to the podcast this week and we'll explain it all. The delegation, here's what you need to know this morning. The delegation informs Paul about the egregious misconduct in the church of Corinth. Not minor infractions, egregious, gross misconduct that is happening in the Corinthian church. Paul is particularly concerned about the internal divisions in the church. Let's read verse number 10. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does he urge them? Listen to these words. That all of you agree. <laughs> There's division. And watch you say that there be, underline these words, no divisions among you. And that you, underline these words, be united with the underlined same understanding and the underlined same convictions. Now let me just read those words you underlined together. Agree, no divisions, be united, same understanding, same conviction. Now, if you've underlined those words, you are getting the message that there is serious division and Paul is saying, oh my goodness, guys, same page, please. Same team, play, uh, uh, agree in what you say. Let's all get together and unify around the core things that unite us. So let me phrase it this way. The debate is about what does it mean to be a spiritual person? You're in the middle of the argument now when you open to the chapter one. Paul believes that to be a spiritual person, we must all agree. These are his words. We must all agree on the centrality of Christ. And we must all live out our individual lives from the power of the gospel. And on this, we must be united. Now, we won't all see everything alike, but on this, we must be united. So we're going to talk a lot about the centrality of the gospel. Let's make sure we all understand what the gospel, uh, in Greek it means the good news. It means the message of good news. The gospel is the story of Christ's sacrifice and resurrected life. That's what the gospel is. How by faith uh, in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life and we have God's spirit given to us. They are transferred into the life. Eternal life and God's spirit are transferred into the life, every life, of everyone who believes on Jesus Christ. Once we've placed our faith in Christ and we've received his spirit, here is the point. Our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes now should be transformed to be modeled after Christ's life. Our goal is to strive for unity now that we've been saved. Our goal is to confront division. Our goal is to unite around the gospel with others. And ultimately, ultimately, every one of us will either choose to focus on what unites us or we'll focus on what divides us. We'll find some little thing we don't agree with or some little thing that we know uh, we have different views on. And we'll just talk about that and talk about that and bring that up and magnify it, magnify it 
till it becomes a tear in the community. Paul's like, no, that's the wrong way to deal with this. Little things need to be little things, and the big thing needs to be the big thing, and the big thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the centrality of Christ. We can choose to become a hyphenated people if we want to. It's what the Corinthians chose to do. They certainly chose hyphenation. In other words, they created their own divisions, and they ended up with Pauline hyphen Christians and Petrine, Peter hyphen Christ, Peter Christian, Apollos Christians and Christ Christians. They, they made groups, hyphenated groups. And they said, well, what camp are you in? Well, what camp? Well, I'm, I'm a, a Paulist Christian. I'm a Paul Christian. And, and they started pulling the people in separate directions. And Paul rebukes them for their divisive behavior. Let me read verse 11 for you. For it's been that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. Another one says, I belong to Apollos. Another one of you says, I belong to Cephas. Or, I belong to Christ. They hyphenated themselves into divisions. Paul said, this is what is reported to me, that you have divided the congregation into camps uh, based on which celebrity pastor you're going to follow. Now, division is always a serious thing. And, you know, I like to think I'm a pretty calm guy and a pretty rational, reasonable, uh, even-keeled human being as your pastor. But when the congregation is attacked, I'm going to go into mama bear mode. Uh, when I, when I see threat and I, man, I can switch gears and suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fight for the unity and protect God's people. It's one of the things I think he calls his pastors to do. Uh, this is what Paul is doing right now. He's like, what has happened? Oh no, division. I'm going to try to pull you back together. Divisions are, are always bad, but their, uh, the nature of their divisions is particularly troubling because they've divided over their misunderstanding of pastoral leadership in the church. They divided the church based on pastoral leadership. They used the pastor as an excuse to rip the church into factions. And Paul's like, oh no, what is happening here? We are commanded not to divide the body of Christ into cults of personality. I don't know if you are familiar with that term, cults of personality. It's like where one individual's personality becomes larger than life and you're attracted to their public persona uh, and, and they begin to amass this great following. We're commanded not to do that. This is the teaching of 1 Corinthians. But as the wheel of history has turned many revolutions to get us to 2021, this is exactly what the modern Christian culture has done in America. Never more in human history has Christianity been characterized by the celebrity pastor. This is the era of the select. Listen, when Paul's writing this in 53, 4, 5 in the springtime, 55 AD, let's say just for easy numbers, They've got a cult of personality problem and the celebrity pastor problem causing division. If it was true in 55, how much more true and how much more relevant is this message to contemporary Christianity in America? You need to be very careful 
about giving your allegiance to a celebrity pastor. But why, pastor? Because they don't know you. They don't know you. They don't know your family. They don't know your children. They don't know your circumstance. And you don't really know them. We build a connection because we hear them or we see them and we think, well, I, I know this fill in the blank celebrity pastor's name. I know them very well. You don't know them at all. They are not responsible for you. They do not have to stand before God and say, I, I have to give account now of these, uh, my congregation. You're not their congregation. So they don't have to give account for you. And likewise, you are not accountable to them because they're not your real pastors. And I think maybe that is exactly the attraction to the celebrity pastor movement. There is no accountability either way. Just replace the names Apollos, who was a great orator of his day, Christian speaker, or Cephas, that's the apostle Peter. He really represents orthodoxy. He's the revered original three disciple, you know, the, 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 the beginning of this all. He is the revered orthodox leader of Christianity. Or replace the name Christ, the central figure of the whole movement, and just write in any modern pastor's name in these verses. Verse 12, you could just write there any modern pastor you want to write, and you get the same argument being made today. Today it would sound like this. Or do you follow MacArthur or Warren? On COVID, they're on both ends of the spectrum of the lockdown issue. One says this, and one says this. Whose camp are you in? Who do you follow? You know, today it would sound like this. Do you follow Stanley or Piper? Opposite ends of this argument, both Christian celebrity pastors. Do you follow Chan or do you with Chandler? And I could go on and on forever, but the big question is this. Whatever happened to following Jesus? In America, we rarely say, do you follow Christ? Instead, we say, do you follow fill-in celebrity pastor here? And we've done exactly what Paul said. Be very, very wary of doing this. You see, Christ's model is a little different than what we're practicing right now. Christ's model involves committing to a church in your community. Christ's model involves commitments. It involves entering into a relationship with a group of believers in your community. A church that you actually attend, a church where you are being fed every week, a church where you actually worship with the other people who've made covenant commitments to that church. Christ's model involves committing to a church where you invest your time. That is the biblical model. Christ's model involves committing to a church where you invest your wealth. Wow, the pages of scripture filled with saints, believers like you and I, who were all in for this Jesus movement. They were all in for the gospel. And it wasn't just a verbal commitment. Man, it was a sacrificial financial commitment. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Christ's model is committing to a church where you have relational investments, a church where you are bearing fruit. That's what Christ's model looks like. 
being a part of a community where you can look around and say, this person prays for me and this person invests in me and I invest in this person right here and we are connected. What connects us? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that glue that holds us all together. One of the challenging aspects of the modern church, again, this unprecedented technology that's connecting us also causes some, you know, uh, unsatisfactory uh, results. While it's completely wonderful to connect with one another, uh, the challenging aspects of the modern church is that we can access spiritual resources like never before. Wow. Podcasts, devotions, sermons, Bible studies, uh, online Bible. I mean, just data, not information is available to us and voices that we want to hear and, and things that we, we, we want to listen to. And what happens is the celebrity figure amasses followers. I think that's the right way to say that. They, um, they get a collection of followers behind them. But the followers never have to commit to anything. Subscribing to a celebrity is not the same as making a commitment to a local community of believers and investing our lives together for the sake of the gospel. Those are very different things altogether. When a celebrity amasses followers and the followers don't make commitments, no one is accountable to anyone. The leader is not accountable for the spiritual development of the people, and the people are not accountable to a spiritual leader. Do you see why Paul is saying it, this is dangerous, the celebrity pastor thing? It's divisive, and ultimately it threatens the gospel, which is why Paul then switches into mama bear role now. When you start attack dividing the church, and it leads to an assault on the gospel itself, people misunderstanding what it is to be born again, people not knowing what the gospel really is or making all these other issues, mountains, and the gospel is just barely a thing we even talk about. Paul says we are messed up now and we've got to get the gospel back to being Mount Everest in our lives, the bedrock, the foundation of our lives. And these other things are just petty things that we can work through for the sake of Jesus Christ. Every individual church and its pastoral team Every individual church and its pastoral team are accountable to God for the care of the congregation. I, I certainly can and will speak for our, our elders and our pastoral team. They are absolutely committed to the care of the community at Cornerstone Baptist Church. And beyond that, they are committed to the care of our disciples in India and Nepal. Our hearts are broken right now with what's going on in Myanmar. I've watched our church members and our leaders reach out to our, our dear disciples in Myanmar who are facing a political crisis like none other this week. And listen, keep encouraging them. They're, I can't take the time to even explain what's happening. I hope you understand. We care for our own. And we see it as a sacred, the pastors see it as a sacred duty that God has given us to love care and protect the, the the community of Cornerstone. When a believer is uncommitted and detached from that accountability or from that care, or you could say from that oversight, then any of us as an individual, when we get that way, we've extended beyond the purpose of the church and we become the ultimate arbiter of our own lives. We judge everything by ourselves rather than having accountability structures in our life. 
What I'm saying, I don't want to beat this drum to death, but what I'm saying is you need a real life community that functions as a safeguard for your weaknesses and for your blind spots. You need to be committed. You need to be accountable. You need, therefore, relationships. Uh, my good friend Steve McCoy often uses these words. He says, you need to know others and you need to be known by others. You have a voice. You need to be heard. You need to exercise your gifts and you need to be a part of a unified body. And that's why Paul then in the next verses calls for unity based on the centrality of Christ. Let me read verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? All right, that verse represents three sharply delivered rhetorical questions, all of which demand the answer, no. So if you want in your journal, is Christ divided? Just write right there, no. Was Paul crucified for you? Wrong answer. Were you baptized in Christ's name? No. Now, that's a rhetorical device, and Paul is using that, so you just quickly say, no, no, no. Look at verse number 14 now. I thank God that I baptized none of you, because you've used it as a tool of division. I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you could say you were baptized in my name. Now, let me explain what's happening right here, because it's really fun. Uh, Paul is dictating. Sosthenes is writing. Watch Sosthenes and Paul have an interaction right in the middle of writing the letter. And what amuses me is this didn't get edited out. And you can see my imagination has played out this scene. Let, let me read it as my imagination sees it. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. I didn't bat any, baptize any of you. Well, that guy may be a that guy, but I didn't baptize any of you so that none of you could say you were baptized in my name. Sosthenes is writing, <coughs> Stephanus. That's what just happened. <coughs> Stephanus. He just cleared his throat because Paul's waxing eloquent in his speech. Uh, you know, baptism isn't the thing to divide the church over. I didn't really get called to baptize you. I didn't baptize you. Well, that guy and that guy, but nobody else. <coughs> Stephanus. And Sosthenes knows these people. He's like, Paul, you left, you're leaving some people out here. And, and, so watch verse 16. Okay, I did, in fact, baptize the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, though, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. There's a humorous little way that text is written where your imagination is recreating. No. I just imagine Paul is a little older. Stephanus says, uh, I mean, uh, Sosthenes is a little younger. And Paul's just in his argument. And he's just, right, slow down, Paul. I'm trying to get it all. And he corrects the apostle Paul as he misstates uh, who he baptized in Corinth. Well, let me just say it this way. The big point of the text is while they express their division in terms of the baptism administrator, the real division was not about that. And you'll see that as we go through the book. The real division centers on which leader has the most desirable speaking gifts, which is why Paul telegraphed in the earlier verses, I'm going to talk about speech. I'm going to talk about gift 
he's telegraphing, he's foreshadowing what he's really going to talk about. And he uses this, you know, you're baptized in the camp, Paul, Paulus, whatever, who baptized you. And you're going to see as we go, though, that's not the real issue who administrated your baptism. The real issue is who has the most eloquent speaking gifts, who has the most flourishing style, because that person tends to win the popular election in any congregation. Paul is saying to these people what I want to say to you and to all of my pastor friends listening, who sometimes we talk to them about how you should choose deacons and how you should select elders and how you should select the leadership of a church. Church leadership should never be based on a popularity contest. When it is, uh, when it's put to a vote in that way, it's just, well, that guy drives a Corvette. He should be one of our elders, you know what I'm saying? Or uh, whatever. It's just, it's popularity or it's flourish, it's style. It, it It's just who, who has a, this maybe eloquence. That person, listen, let me just be blunt. The person with the best speaking gifts tends to be the president of the fellowship, any fellowship, any movement of any Christians. The person with the best speaking gifts tends to have a little bit larger congregation and therefore they become the decision makers over groups of Christians. Dangerous, 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 Paul says. And this is the real issue that's coming. It's not about who has the most eloquent speaking gifts. It's not about who's the most popular because what Paul's addressing in Corinth is really a trap that many, many churches have fallen into by just putting leaders in who are popular with the congregation. It's evident that some people in the Corinthian congregation, a group, preferred the speaking style of Apollos, who spoke with flourish and with eloquence and with probably grace and charm. He's a great orator. Some preferred his style of delivery, the intellectual tone of his message. Yet in Acts chapter number 18, we learn he's eloquent. We learn he's articulate. Apollos, I'm saying. But we also learn that his doctrine was incorrect. He didn't quite, he could say it in a beautiful way, but he wasn't saying the right thing. And we notice in Acts 18 that we asked you to read last week that Priscilla and Aquila the husband-wife disciple-making team, the tent makers, remember them? We learned that they pulled Apollos aside after hearing one of his messages and said, wow, man, you have speaking gifts. And it's easy to recognize when somebody has a speaking gift. You have speaking gifts, but your message is incorrect. I mean, it's not that you're preaching against Christ, but you just don't have it laid out correctly in the correct uh, theological way. We need to help you with your understanding. And there's many things I could say right there. One, he was teachable by Priscilla and Aquila, which is a beautiful thing. And and I hope I and I hope every leader in our church and listening to this point remain teachable. Even when you hit that parent phase, grandparent phase of your life, be, I'm thinking spiritual parent, spiritual grandparent, even though you are bearing fruit and exercising your gifts, remain teachable. Let me read Acts 18, 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained the way of God more accurately. It's beautifully written in it, more accurately. It's not that he was messed, you know, off in left. It's just let's clean it up, tighten it up, the theology a little bit. Now, conversely, here's what we can figure out. 
Paul didn't have the best stage presence. He's not the most eloquent speaker. While Apollos was possibly among the great orators of his day, Paul suffered in comparison to Apollos. I'm not saying Paul was a bad speaker. He's very persuasive on Mars Hill and in other passages in the Bible. But compared to Apollos, he's now not in the spotlight. And the point is that the Corinthian church believed the most spiritual people were the ones with the best speaking abilities. But is that true? Are the best Christians the ones with the best speaking abilities? Are they the ones who are elite among us because of their oratory abilities? Is this the way God measures? Does this answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritual people? Well, if you're spiritual people, you will obviously have these wonderful speaking gifts. I don't think so. Is there more to the Christian life and following Christ than speaking gifts? Yeah, the Bible mentions a lot more gifts. There's much more to being a mature Christian than just being a good public speaker. As a matter of fact, it's, it appears from what we're about to read that Paul is not overly concerned at all with who has the best speaking skills because delivering eloquent speeches is not the real indicator of having the power of God. The real power is in the gospel and in your relationship with Christ which is why Paul is telling the people, unite around Christ, because magnifying Christ creates unity in any Christian community. And without unity, the church will become dysfunctional. So now Paul defends his mission and his method. We come to a shift now, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the mission. Watch the method now. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. What I want you to see is that Paul made a strategic decision. He knows his audience. He says, I'm going to Corinth. I know this is the most pagan of pagan places. I know what I'm getting into. I know who these people are. And so I'm going to make a strategic decision about how I'm going to present the gospel to the Corinthian citizens who are living in this desperately pagan place. And Paul's strategy involved appealing to the simplicity of the gospel and not appealing to the wisdom of the world. So remember, the pursuit of worldly wisdom, this pursuit of philosophical ideologies, was a driving force in the culture of the Corinthians. When I say philosophers, you're already thinking Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, et al., Greeks. And Paul knew that the Greek mindset wanted this highbrow, oratory, philosophical type persona to lead any movement. And Paul says, I don't want what we're doing in Corinth to be misconstrued as I'm just another philosopher showing up with another philosophy among the millions of philosophers and their philosophies. Paul said, I've got to show them that this is something very, very different. So I'm going to come to them with a clear message, a simple message. And Paul's appeal is that we do not turn the church into a cult of personalities or this cult of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an elite group of knowers, an elite group. We can't make our church 
an elite group of people who know something that no one else has access to. We know all the secrets and hidden codes within the Bible. And we're going to keep them here at Cornerstone and no one else is allowed to come in and know the secrets that we know, the deep things of the word of God. Paul's like, that's just nonsense. That has nothing to do with what we're trying to do. What we know from this text is that Paul's mission was to preach the gospel. His method was to do so with such simplicity so that his hearers would not be distracted by the personality of the preacher. He didn't want to come in with flourishes and with oratory and woo them by his speech. He wanted them to be transformed by the message, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted the gospel then to stand in the power of the cross, not the power of oratory. Presenting the gospel with a simple and straightforward clarity should be the policy and practice of any leader who wants to, uh, the audience to know Christ above all else. Such a leader, his or her challenge will be to take the message, remove it of anything superfluous that might detract from the truth, or remove it from any delivery style that might cause the hearer to focus on the deliverer rather than focusing on Jesus Christ. Let me say that in a more simple way. I think that was too convoluted. The challenge of presenting the gospel, the challenge of leading through speaking gifts is to be understandable, to be clear, and not to soak up the spotlight into your personality, but let the people hear from the gospel and hear the message of Christ without you distracting them. Uh, that is the challenge of presenting the gospel. The real struggle that anyone has in presenting the gospel is to get yourself out of the way so that the people can see Christ, so that the people can hear what Jesus has done for them. The real struggle is to communicate the gospel on God's terms, and in God's wisdom, and to preserve unity in the church by keeping Christ's person as central to everything in our church. Let me transition to the closing, and really, as I said, uh, Susan and, and, and David will uh, in more detail cover the last two paragraphs of this chapter in their devotions that'll go out this week. But let me set the tone for the teaching that you're going to hear now, in these last two paragraphs, Paul defines real power and real wisdom. That's what's happening. If you want to make a note, Paul's about to define real power and real wisdom. In closing, let me just read a few verses of this. Just pick a couple of verses out of this. Have your pen handy and I'll, I'll show you what to underline. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. I want you to write at the beginning of verse 18, the word gospel. You should write the word gospel right there and let me explain why I want you to write that. Notice the words for the word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? It's the message about the cross. It's the gospel. It's the message that Christ died for our sins. He's risen again, and by faith in him, he'll transfer eternal life to you, and the Holy Spirit of God will take up residence, and you become the temple of the living God. That is the, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So for the gospel, 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. I want you to underline this phrase. It is the power of God. It is the power of God to us who are being saved. Let me read it one more time. I'll read it. I'm going to plug the word gospel in. For the word of the cross, for the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The world, here's the gospel. Our Savior is a crucified Jew from the first century who rose again. Hey, they mock, they laugh. It's just nonsense to them. But to us who are being saved, that message is the power of God. Now, remember what this section is. Paul's about to define real power. What is real power and real wisdom? Here is real power and real wisdom. The gospel is to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Look at verse 24. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, underline this phrase, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, when I said to you these last two paragraphs are about real power and wisdom, now you see why we said that. This is the meaning. This is the the, the thought that Paul is trying to convey. To we who are believers, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, verse 25, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's joke is wiser than your philosophers, you Greeks. God could make a joke that would sound more profound than Plato or Socrates. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Look at verse 30. You'll see it again. Verse 30. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, underline it, who became wisdom from God for us. So if somebody says to you, well, where is real wisdom found? Well, it's in the message of the cross or it's in Christ, Christ Jesus became the wisdom of God for us. What else did he become? Our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Three very big spiritual words right there. Those three theological terms, maybe Pastor David will deal with those more as we as we move forward into the, the devotion. In order that, as it is written, I want you to underline or circle, as it is written. Because when you see that in verse 31, it means Paul's about to quote his Bible. Now, his Bible is the Old Testament. Obviously, he's writing the New Testament for us. But when Paul says it is written, he's about to hearken back to his Bible, which is only half as big as yours, the Old Testament. And as Paul quotes the Old Testament, you can write in your margin, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It would be worth reading Jeremiah chapter 9 to see what is the context of the verse that Paul now alludes to? And Paul takes this verse from Jeremiah, from his Bible, and Paul says, this reminds me of what Jeremiah said. And what does Paul apply that to the Corinthian church as? Verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what Jeremiah said, and that's Paul's application of Jeremiah chapter 9. What it means is Paul is going to constantly circle our attention back to, you want to boast? Boast in the Lord. You want to brag about something? Let's brag on Jesus. Listen, you want to give a clap in the service when you're worshiping? Clap to Jesus all day long. You want to give a shout? Give a shout to God. You want to say thank you? Lift your hands and say thank you. It's all about, Paul's going to constantly pull our attention back to the centrality of Christ 
You see, since our salvation is a gift from God, we have nothing to boast about. You don't boast a, a gift. All you did was receive it. It's the gift giver that was the genius and the sacrificer and the one who paid the, the expense you just received. And this is really what Paul's saying. We have nothing to boast of. Because salvation is a gift, our default attitudes are humility and graciousness. That should be our default mode. Humility and graciousness. All boasting and arrogance are excluded because we recognize, well, let me tell you what I recognize, who who I was, who we were, recognize what I received in Christ, the great gift of God. And we now can see who we are is different from who we were. It's kind of a before, during, and after formula here. All of our boasting is excluded because we know we're being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me summarize most of chapter one, and we'll get the rest in devotions this week. You can see that Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their divisive behavior. That's what this chapter is about. And he appeals to them for unity based on the centrality of Christ and the gospel. And in doing so, Paul both defended his mission of proclaiming the gospel and his method of proclaiming it with simplicity, not dependent upon the eloquence of this world's wisdom. So when the congregation says, yeah, but Apollos really flourishes, Paul's like, well, I could flourish too, but that's not, waxing eloquent was not my goal with you guys. It was getting you to understand God's wisdom is not like the world's wisdom. It rests in in the cross. It rests in the gospel. It rests in Christ. So what are we to do with the message? Well, if we keep our focus on Christ, if we keep the gospel in Christ as central to Cornerstone, we're going to be deterred from dividing the congregation. Uh, we are less likely to have division if we let little things be little things and we let the big thing be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more we can keep our vision on Christ and the gospel and making disciples and his mission and all that we talk about all the time, the less we get distracted with little things that could cause divisions in a congregation. Why? We're united in the thing that unites us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I'm asking you to make a fresh commitment. That's really what I want to do with Chuck. Just make a fresh commitment to God today and say, God, I'm going to live out my life for the mission of Christ. And I'm going to try to do it like Paul did with the method of Christ. Just simplicity, just straightforward simplicity. I'm not going to magnify myself. I'm going to rest in the power of the gospel. We have many wonderful leaders at Cornerstone and many wonderful disciples are listening around the world. And you have all kinds of speaking gifts that are fabulous. Let me say this in, in closing for everyone who leads and everyone who edifies a group of people through your teaching gifts that God has given you. Remember, we are not going to magnify our own wisdom. Our goal is not to sound smart. But again, I would say this footnote, don't sound stupid either. Don't, 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 don't use bad speech. And you know, that's just simplicity. Just present the message, make it uh, approachable. Don't, don't make the gospel something that only a few people can comprehend. Make it reachable. 
put God's message within the reach of people. And when you unleash the simplicity of the gospel, remember what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. It is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel has its own power. You don't have to hide it. Just proclaim it. The gospel will transform people's lives. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. I have some homework assignments for homework's a bad word. I have some wonderful discipleship assignments for you. We'll put them up here. Some options. Just pick one. Uh, read chapters two and three this week. If you're really squeezed for time and uh, you're going to brave the icy roads and go to work and go to school and your time's going to be limited. All right. So just read chapter two and chapter three. See if you can get that done this week. They're, they're not long. Uh, and certainly that's uh, attainable for every every one of our, our listeners. Or B, if you get a little more time this week, read chapters two and three every day. Just make this your devotion every morning. Just say, I'm going to get up and read chapter two and three. Or chapter two and read chapter three this afternoon. Make some notes, write down your questions. You can certainly text them into us on the phone number and we'll address your, your questions and concerns. Or if you're one of our gifted and talented uh, church members, we're going to do option B, plus we're going to memorize a, a verse. Very simple verses we're giving you filled with profound truth. This week's memory verse is this, 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Let me read it for you. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, true that, but we have received the spirit who comes from God, and amen to that, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. Simple memory verse on, we haven't received the world's spirit, we have received the Spirit from God, and He communicates to us what God wants us to know. Great, great verse. Listen, I hope you enjoyed First Corinthians. More coming this week. There will be a podcast, and I know of at least two devotions coming this week. It's going to be a wonderful time in the Word of God this week. Stay safe. Your safety is, it's not just something we say, your safety is important. It is our concern. We love you. We're praying for you. Be safe, love one another, focus on the gospel and preserve the unity. That is the message of Paul. Let's pray together. I'm going to cut you loose and enjoy your family for lunch. Father, thank you for meeting with us in our families today. Thank you for meeting with us through technology. God, I pray that the words of 1 Corinthians, your words that you gave to the apostle would resonate in our hearts. And we would learn how to magnify the big thing, how to minimize the little things, how to be led by your spirit, how not to get caught up in personalities and celebrities, but to realize the wonderful gift that you've given us in the local community of believers, relationships and investments and community and love and accountability. God, thank you for the wonderful, wonderful people that you have assembled together in our community. God, bless us this week with your richest blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.